talk to you today um, about political spending on the internet in the US and the UK, and specifically about ongoing and, and somewhat kind of stymied efforts in both countries to adapt election law and electoral law to um, better or differently regulate online campaigning. And my talk's going to proceed in, in really three parts today. I'm going to start by talking briefly about the 2016 elections in both of our countries, the US presidential election and the Brexit referendum um, here. And much of what, um, a lot has been said about those elections. Um, that ground is quite well covered. I, I use those elections here just because they really provide the, the baseline of kind of our, our um, collective understanding of the way online campaigning had changed. Because of the studies that have gone on around those elections, we know a lot more. Um, and we, it really increased our awareness of how these platforms and how the online space was being used in political campaigning. Um, then I'm going to talk about the law in our two countries, electoral law in the US and in the UK. Um, these bodies of law are typically thought of as very, very different. Um, and as I'll, as I'll go through, in many ways they are, but in some critically important ways for these purposes, for regulating online, um, they are not. And lastly, I'll conclude by offering a couple of suggestions um, which have been uh, are, are under active discussion by electoral your electoral commission um, reform and advocacy groups in both countries um, about some modest changes that perhaps are the easier things to do among the many, many hard things to do. But I'll, uh, that will involve some discussion of what perhaps we can do right now. But my main point, the main thing I want to communicate today to you um, is a better understanding of just how hard this is. Reform efforts, particularly around campaign financing, often kind of get popularized in this rhetoric about, well, why don't we just get money out of politics? Why don't we just exclude foreign sources? Why don't we just do that? Why don't we just do that? There's reasons why that doesn't happen. Um, and, and it's not about about a lack of political will or, or a lack of, of clarity of mission, it's often because these are actually really hard questions with pretty deep complexities. So that what I want you to leave here with today is a, a richer understanding of why these problems are hard. Um, and perhaps with that, a little bit more sympathy for some of the regulators who are trying very hard to work in this area. Um, OK, let's start with the 2016 elections. Um, and as I said, these elections really revealed the extent to which the online space was being used differently than it had been in previous political campaign cycles. Um, and what we know um, is that thieves stole data, sometimes in the form of, uh, uh, of personal data, sometimes in the form of email, sometimes in the form of identities. But there was a lot of data grabbing going on that probably shouldn't have been happening. And they used that information along with other sources of information to really inflame um, tensions around previously existing um, social conflict. Um, in the US, that involved guns and race and immigration. Um, in the UK, it involved a, a slightly different cluster of issues. But there was a lot of pushing on um, existing tensions um, in the online space. Um, and then 
an army of trolls, bots, and avatars um, were used to really amplify that type of mis- or disinformation across online platforms. We also know that these efforts really had a very broad reach. In the 2016 election in the United States, we know that um, the, the troll farm associated with the IRA um, in St. Petersburg was spending a million dollars a month in the lead up to the election to, to amplify these efforts um, into the US electorate. We also know that that involved the creation of faked, fake social media accounts, imposter accounts, being ran by trained impersonators who were trained exactly how to push on, on, on America's social tensions. Um, that misinformation got fed into at least 30 million Facebook news feeds, and then of course was liked and shared to many, many millions more. Um, and of course this has resulted in a, a series of indictments and investigations and guilty pleas. We know less about what happened in Brexit, um, perhaps because th there might be a bit less to know. Um, we do know that the, the UK government has stressed that there hasn't been evidence that they've seen of successful um, intervention in actually a swain of the outcome kind of way. Um, we also know that, though, that the maximum fine then possible was imposed on Facebook by the Information Commission for its data management practices. We know that a Brexit botnet, um, a, a connected uh, series of automated um, programmed accounts that, that amplify each other's information, was active during the debate. Um, and that 419 of the accounts that were suspended on uh, Twitter and Facebook in the US because of their activities had also been tweeting about Brexit and issues surrounding the referendum. There have been two criminal investigation referrals and some um, fines for, for data and financing violations, along with some ongoing um, and, and a few concluded uh, parliamentary investigations. So what law governs all of this? Now, my area of expertise is, of course, election law. Um, and, and given how many of these efforts um, appear to have been driven at influencing the election outcome, um, the first question is, is what is the body of law, of election law that actually governs this? And more specifically, is there anything to be learned as between the US and the UK body of law in this area? So let me start with just um, a brief outline of the law in the, of election law in the US and election law in the UK. This is very brief, um, but it's, it's getting at a particular point. Anyone who studies election law um, in the US or the UK, um, knows that, that these systems are often thought of as very, very different. Um, from the US side of the ocean, we think of ourselves as having a, a First Amendment exceptionalism, where our approach to freedom of expression embodied in our Constitution through the First Amendment is so different um, than everybody else's and kind of our family of nations that, that there's little value to comparative work. Um, and in the UK, um, I think when, when US freedom of expression or First Amendment law, or election law for that matter, is invoked at all, it's often invoked as a, a negative example in the sense of, you know, whatever happens, please don't let us become like them. Um, so so there's, there's a question at the, at the very start here about whether these systems can be comparably or helpfully or fruitfully compared. So to start with the differences, in the basic outlines of the way campaign financing 
works or is regulated in the US and the UK. Um, the systems are very different. In the US, through a series of regulatory, statutory, and Supreme Court decisions, um, we have landed at a place where we have unlimited spending. Um, our court, our Supreme Court has said that spending of money directly to buy political speech, to try to influence um, uh, campaigns through the purchase of your own speech, um, can't be limited. That that's an act of pure political expression. Um, and it can't, can't, constitutionally cannot be capped. So we don't have spending limits. We do, though, have contribution limits. Our court has said that when you give money to somebody else to enable that entity's speech, that contribution can be capped, even if that entity's subsequent speech with your money cannot be. Um, we also have um, exceptions to that rule, where we have a, a cluster of groups, social welfare groups, certain types of other um, groups defined by their um, tax status, um, that are subject to different rules or exempted from certain types of disclosure. So the upshot of, and there's a lot of complexity in that, but the upshot of that in the US is that we do find ourselves in a system where our, our campaign financing is driven by a um, insatiable need for money because spending is unlimited by constitutional law. We have a, a desperate need for money and a limited ability for political parties and candidates to raise it. That has evolved into a system where third party campaigners, people who are neither political parties nor candidates, actually have the easiest ability to spend money. And consequently, third party campaigners are, are becoming more dominant voices um, because of the way the money flows in the US. In the UK, your system structurally is very different. Um, you have limited spending by parties and by most third party campaigners um, are subject to spending caps. There is a limited amount of money that they can spend, um, but you have, real, you have unlimited contributions um, and contributions are disclosed. You have a robust disclosure regime. It happens after the election, in, in most cases I believe several months after the election. Um, and and the, the regulatory period is the regulatory period around the election when, when, when um, reporting is done. So in other words, we ended up at home with a system with unlimited spending but capped contributions. You for the most part have a system with uncapped contributions but limited spending. That's very different. But in the space in which online electioneering happens, the two systems are actually quite similar. And they're similar through their lack of law. One of your advocacy bodies called the internet the Wild West of, of campaign financing. And I think there's a fair amount of truth to that. We have learned in both of our countries that to a somewhat surprising extent, a lot of what happens online is not captured by our regulatory regimes. Neither of our countries prohibit anonymous online electioneering or the use of imposter accounts, those fake Facebook accounts or botnets. Um, we both have incomplete um, funding sources of, or disclosure regimes for funding sources of, of who's paying for certain types of things that happen online. Um, and we both have uncertain laws 
about foreign spending, spending by who, uh, people who are either non-citizens or non-residents of the, the country at, at issue. So the, our systems actually end up being fairly similar in regard to the types of gaps in our regulatory schemes that the online electioneering explosion has really revealed. So <clears throat> specifically, online, I'm going to draw our attention to these three areas. Neither the US nor the UK have comprehensive imprint rule, rules. In the US, we call this um, disclaimers. This is the, the authorized and paid for. This is the little bit um, on advertising that happens in hard copy in the real world um, that says who is paying for the expression, who is paying for the, the, the communication. Neither of our countries comprehensively require those imprints online, even for material that would require them offline if it was, that was exactly the same but printed and distributed offline. In the US, we only have online imprint rules for things that are express advertising, and I'll come back and define that in a bit here, um, and things that are paid to be placed on somebody else's web page. Um, and that's, a, that's an and, not an or. In the UK, your, your current regulatory regime doesn't mandate online imprints at all. Again, even if the exact same material would carry an imprint um, if just printed and distributed off, offline. Um, we also don't have fully wrapped around comprehensive disclosure rules for online spending. Um, in the US, we have this social welfare category um, of groups who are supposed to be less connected to political parties um, and candidates who um, do not have to disclose the sources of their funding um, unless they're specifically earmarked for a particular ad. Um, and in the UK, you do have a more robust disclosure regime for things that are, with, um, that are caught within the regulatory realm um, during the electoral period, but it happens after the election and it's aggregated, by which I mean it's not easy to tease out um, what bits of money were spent on what bits of advertising. So it's hard to reconstruct exactly who paid for what, and it happens um, long after the election, um, which minimizes the public information, information value um, of, of, the, of the information. We also both have unclear foreign spending rules. Um, in, the, in the US, we, we have two cases, again, which I'll talk about. This is kind of just framing it up for you. Um, Citizens United and Blumen, um, which kind of tug in opposite directions about foreign uh, spending rules. Um, and in the UK, um, you appear to have a gap in your regulation that if a, a non-UK spender um, spends beneath the amount triggering regulation as a third-party campaigner, it's not clear that that spending is prohibited or captured by your regulatory regime. Okay, reform proposals in both countries are actually really quite similar. When, when folks look at this list, um, and lots of people in both of our countries are looking at this list, um, and lots of good thinking is going into what should we change, what can we change, what would a regulatory system that look like that better captures some of this online electioneering activity, um, when regulators and reform advocates look at this list, um, in both countries, they are coming up with very similar proposals. And I'm going to talk to you today about two clusters of those proposals, transparency rules and source exclusions. And just to briefly define both of those terms, 
Transparency rules are exactly what they sound like. Um, proposals or reform proposals that are about increasing transparency are things like requiring online imprints so people understand who's paying for the political messages that they're seeing. They also include things like um, uh, requirements that social media platforms like Facebook archive their political advertisements. So you can go back and see what was ran, who saw it, how it was targeted, that type of archival work, better disclosure rules, but, um, more, more, um, uh, more immediate reporting and more public reporting of who's paying for what, um, greater information about the underlying sources of, of funding that pays for political communications. There's a whole cluster of proposals that can be um, collectively grouped into transparency requirements, enhancing the ability of everyone to understand who's paying for the political messaging that they see. Um, and the second cluster of reform proposals I'm going to talk about today are source exclusions. And source exclusions are, 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 are rules and reform proposals that say, regardless of how transparent something is, there are certain entities who simply shouldn't be able to participate in a domestic country's conversation about self-governance. Um, source exclusions of, include, of course, things like foreign entities, but they also include um, corporations, foreign or non-foreign non corporations, which has been a big battle in the United States. Um, it, it, it's source exclusions drive at who gets to participate in the conversation at all even when their participation is fully transparent for everyone to see. Starting with transparency. If there is a common ground among um, campaign finance regulatory schemes, it probably lies with basic transparency rules. Transparency rules are broadly seen as fulfilling two distinct um, and each important goals or, or missions in a campaign finance regime. First of all, transparency rules are seen as protecting against corruption through vigilance. And what I mean by that is that this perceived value of transparency says that one of the ways we protect against corruption of public officials is to know who they're indebted to. Who are they getting their money from? And if we know that, we can then watch their conduct, evaluate what they're doing, and decide if we think that those financial sources are influencing their decisions too much. So the first goal of transparency, or perceived value of transparency, is that that we can use transparency to keep an eye on the conduct of the elected officials to determine whether we think they're too indebted to their funders. But a second value of transparency um, is really completely different. And that perceived value of transparency is, is about the, the, the viewer of the information, about the voter, not the elected official. Um, and the value is that by knowing who funds something, we, the voters, are better able to contextualize the messages that we see. So it matters when I see a political message if I know who paid for it, because then I can better evaluate what their incentives are, what their skew might be. It helps me be a more critical recipient of the message itself. 
So transparency is seen as promoting both of those things. Because it's seen as promoting both of those things, and because it's broadly accepted um, that those are good things, that if you're going to have a campaign finance system, these, these roles, or the, the transparency plays, plays these roles has some value. Um, nonetheless, transparency rules share in the US and the UK and in most systems um, a common problem. And that's how to define the scope of what it is you're actually making be transparent. So we can all say, yes, political communication should be transparent, all those good things. We should know who's funding it. We should be able to watch with vigilance for corruption. That's all very well and good. But before we go too far down that path, we have to answer the question of how do we define the scope of what we're even trying to regulate. Transparency reforms get stymied on this question because it's a hard question. So just to give you an example, an election regulation scheme that, is, says that, that has a transparency regime and says we're, we're going to require political communications to be transparent. Any, any, any system's going to want to capture within the scope of that regulation um, the statement broadly distributed that says, elect Lori Ringhan to the US Senate. In the US, we call this express advocacy. You are expressly calling for the election or defeat of a named candidate for office. Any system that has transparency rules at all is going to want to capture that. Very few systems, our law professors are awesome, very few systems are going to want to capture law professors are awesome. And that's because we want people to have a broad, wide, robust ability to communicate about issues of public importance. And the awesomeness of law professors is highly public and publicly important. We want, we want people to have that space to have conversations about things of public interest without getting caught in a complicated regulatory regime. So a transparent system wants to capture this within its definition, but doesn't want to capture that. Well, what do you do with this? When law professor Ringhand is running for the US Senate, and the communication says we need more law professors in the Senate, do you want that in your regulatory regime or not? That's a really hard question. Regulators, courts, legislative bodies in the US and in the UK have really struggled with this question. And in fact, this question, trying to answer this question is, is, is a big part of why you campaign law in the US is so complicated because of all the different ways we've tried to answer that question. What should we actually capture with this regulation? So in the US, um, we've tried the so-called magic words approach. This was a gift from the US Supreme Court. Um, and what, what, it, what, what the court said in trying to define a bright line test to define what was regulated versus what was not, what the court said was, well, the things that will be regulated are things that use the magic words. Magic words being vote for or vote against a named candidate. So we tried that for a while. Um, and it's, it, it certainly is not under-included, or it captures part of what you want to cap capture. It captures elect Lori Ringhand to the Senate. But it turned out to be really easy to avoid magic words, right? So instead of having a, a political communication that says, vote for Ringhand for the Senate, it says, 
call Ring Hand and tell her how you feel about her lousy ability or her, her platform or her agenda to do X, Y, or Z. So magic words turned out to be quite under-inclusive. A lot of, it was very easy to manipulate, very easy to get around. In the US, we also have a, a primary purpose test. This is the category um, that regulates third-party campaigners um, and has, has gotten to the point where what the rule is is that if you are a social welfare group, if you're a group organized um, uh, to, to in, engage in a variety of activities, as long as your primary purpose, by which it has come to mean less than 50% of your activities, are not about political advocacy, then you're outside the regulation. So we tried to define the regulated scope by the group doing the advocacy. That also, of course, becomes very easy to game. You just keep things at 49.9% and you're clear of the regulatory regime. Um, and then, of course, we've used time. We have certain disclaimer rules in the offline world that attach to, um, like your electoral period, that attach only within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election and are broadcast to the relevant audience. So we've tried all of these. You've tried similar things in the UK. Um, you have content-based rules that are about influence, defined things as um, uh, communications that try to influence the election, um, speaker-based rules that define certain groups as, as campaigning groups that are regulated um, because of their status as a political group. And then, of course, time rules binding um, your uh, reporting regime to uh, mainly things that happen during the election period. Um, none of these work very well. And none of them work very well um, because it's very easy once you have a rule to work around it if your political culture encourages doing so. And what we're finding is that increasingly political culture does tolerate this type of gaming. Um, and it's even worse on the internet. So trying to regulate, trying to define the scope of what is and is not regulated for purposes of developing transparency rules is hard full stop. It becomes almost impossible when you're trying to define the scope of what should be within your transparency world in an online space. Internet advertising is transitory. Um, you can test and delete thousands of ads um, to figure out which best communicates your message without using the magic words or any sort of trigger. So that test works really poorly online. It's also organic and cheap. Anything that tries to tie regulation to the um, original speaker is not really going to accomplish its task when the value of online communication is not the initial paid placement, but the organic sharing through, through other actors who are often just you know, normal people who are sharing these things um, without being connected to the original placement, whether it's a paid placement or some type of advocacy group. Um, and online communication, online campaigning is also very, very inexpensive. So both systems have dollar amount triggers that exempt relatively small spend um, from regulatory regimes. But again, because of the way international, internet communication gains its power through organic sharing, the, the tiny amount of money that it pays to do an initial buy on Facebook can slide in under the regulatory regime, even if the ultimate organic spread is worth millions um, of, of pounds or dollars in terms of its ultimate reach. 
And of course, it's also ubiquitous. Time-bound um, rules don't work well in an environment in which we are always campaigning all the time. Um, and I think the UK in particular is, 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 is realizing that, that that can be a very challenging um, uh, way to define regulated speech when the campaigning for a, a, a given cause issue or political um, result really never ends. So it's a hard problem in the first instance. It's even harder when you're trying to move your regulatory regime online. All right. What about source exclusions? The second category of reform proposals I want to talk a bit about today. Um, source exclusions, again, what a source exclusion does is it prohibits certain entities from participating in the democratic um, political campaign finance or the campaigning discussion at all, even when the source of the um, speaker is fully and transparently disclosed. So to give you an example of a source exclusion, the problem with regulating, to give an example of the problem of, 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 of regulating source, of defining source exclusions, is who are we excluding? But then more critically, what is the actual normative justification for the exclusion? So to give you an example, some of you may remember the Bush v. Kerry election in the US in 2004. Um, and there was a charming effort by the Guardian newspaper to send, have a bunch of British citizens send letters to Ohio voters. Does anyone remember this? Ohio was a swing state in this election, and the Guardian decided that it was going to gather up a bunch of letters written by British um, citizens and send them to people in Ohio saying things like this. You know, don't be ashamed of your president. You didn't vote for him. Don't let it come to this. It's time for Americans traveling abroad to stop trying to uh, simulate a, a Canadian accent. So we got all these letters from all these British people telling us how to do our politics. Um, this, this perhaps not surprisingly didn't go over really well. Um, it ended up with the Guardian doing kind of a little mea culpa and backing off of the effort and, and realizing that maybe this was not the most um, savvy thing to try to, to do. Um, question for our purposes is, should it be illegal? When you're talking about the President of the United States, lots of people in the world are affected by that decision. What justification do we have for not letting American voters hear those opinions? That question has both a legal and a normative piece to it. And the two things are, are the two, the, two uh, the, the law and the normativity are connected. Um, it's a legally relevant question, this question of why exactly can't you see this as long as it's fully disclosed? That's a legally relevant question in the US because part of our, our First Amendment or our freedom of expression constitutional law requires that a law be narrowly tailored to advance a compelling government interest. In other words, it has to be drawn as narrowly as possible to restrict as little speech as necessary in order to advance its interest. So the why is baked into the constitutional question. Um, in, in, in the UK, in the European Court of Human Rights, you ask a similar version of a question looking at proportionality. Is the response proportionate to the need, or is this, is this restriction necessary in a free and democratic society? 
Um, and the question of why can't you give this message even if it's fully disclosed, it's also normatively complex because unlike the first value of transparency, source exclusions aren't really about corruption of elected officials. They're, they're about what does this do to our internal debate? What does it mean to say that we're going to regulate something even though it's mediated through the mind of a voter? Why can't you see this um, if it, as long, and then make up your own mind about its relative importance? Those are complicated questions, and we don't have good answers to them. If it's fully transparent, why prevent a voter from hearing that perspective? Again, um, both of our countries have struggled with this question. What is the why for this type of source-based exclusion? Um, in the United States, we have two court opinions that pull in really quite different directions on this question of source exclusions. Some of you may have heard of the Citizens United case. Um, it was a 2010 US Supreme Court decision um, that invalidated on constitutional grounds a prohibition on incorporated entities using general corporate revenue to buy political speech. Um, in its reasoning, the US Supreme Court in Citizens United really stressed the invalidity of source-based exclusions. The Citizens United opinion just rings with this rhetoric about how people hear political messages, they evaluate them, and it doesn't matter what the source of the money is. There's no reason to distinguish on the basis of the source of the funding um, as long as you know, it's, it's part of otherwise um, valid and disclosed as required by law. So Citizens United was very dismissive of source-based exclusions as completely foreign to the, 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 the US First Amendment. A separate opinion decided just two years later and written by now Justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was sitting on a lower um, federal court asked whether a Canadian could be prevented from spending a relatively small amount of money on advocacy, express advocacy, um, in, the, in a United States political election. Um, and the court upheld the exclusion. They said that the prohibition was appropriate and acceptable. And it recognized Citizens United's dismissal of source-based exclusions, but carved out an exception for foreign um, citizens. And it carved out the exception by drawing on a completely different body of law that talks about the sovereign right of states, nation states, um, to define their own political agendas and to really limit the hard work of self-governance to people who are part of the political community. So Citizens United and Blumen, that case, take really fundamentally different approaches to this question of when and if source exclusions can ever be valid. In the UK, I think you have a bit less of a, um, a, a normative debate about this, but your, regulations, your regulatory scheme isn't quite where you maybe thought it was. Um, in that foreign donations are prohibited, um, except for 
corporations with UK subsidiaries appear to be able to, to, to fairly easily um, fund, make political donations through those subsidiaries. And as I mentioned earlier, the status of foreign source spending is a little less clear as long as it comes in under 10,000 pounds or whatever the, for the, race, the, the relevant race is that triggers um, registration as a third party campaigner. So our laws in both countries here are complicated. Um, and they're complicated, I would posit, because they don't quite know what to do with this, these ideas about um, regulations that are based on what we think about how voters make decisions and material that is mediated through the mind of the voters that's about the cognitive state of how voters think about information. We don't really have good ways of talking about that, yet source exclusions really depend on those rationales for their legitimacy. And again, it's harder on the internet. Um, because we are starting to know a lot about the way receiving information online affects how we cognitively process it. Information online travels very rapidly, which means we have very quick responses that are not necessarily always our most reflective responses. Confirmation bias, you all probably know what confirmation bias is. It's a tendency that humans have to um, accept as valid information that they're predisposed to agree with and dismiss as invalid information that they're not predisposed to agree with. That's worse on the internet. We're bad at this across the board. We're really terrible at it when we receive information online. Um, information online also appeals and travels more rapidly when it has a high um, index on the emotionality scales. In other words, things that push our buttons. Um, whether, they make us whether it's to make us angry or happy, things that really draw on emotionality as their primary way of, of motivating um, people um, have a better online life. <laughs> so if I was in class, I'd call on you right now and make you, make you describe distortion. What's the distortion? <laughs> so what distortion and normalization is? These two things kind of go together. Um, this is the, the, the idea that what, we can, what, what can happen online very, very easily, particularly but not exclu exclusively through automation, is we can create an artificial sense of how popular an idea is, an idea, a candidate, a, a position. You can create an amplification that makes it appear that this idea is broadly accepted, even when it's not. And what happens is when we think other people take an idea seriously or accept it, we are more inclined to do so ourselves. So you can bootstrap your way to genuine acceptability by faking it when you start out. So all of these problems that source exclusions have about trying to base regulations on what we think happens in the, in the mind of a voter are made worse when that com political communication is traveling in the online world. All right. So given all that really depressing stuff about how hard this is, um, what perhaps could we do right now? Um, and I have some very modest suggestions. They are not original. These are things that our various regulatory and reform communities have been suggesting. But what they are is doable. Because one of, if, if the lesson I want you to, or if the, the main message I want you to take away today is to not get mad at your regulators because this stuff is actually really hard, um, that means it's going to take, we're going to need a little time to figure out how to do this well. 
But let's pluck the low-hanging fruit. Um, and there are some things that are relatively easier than other things to do here. One is both of our systems could require online imprints for things that would require them if they lived offline. Um, in, in, in the US, um, there's nothing in our constitutional rules that prohibits this. There's some action in the statutory and regulatory realm to move us a little bit closer to this. Um, your election commission has been asking the UK government for the ability to do this for some time, now I think more pressingly so. But this, this is a relatively easy move because we're just taking the existing regulatory regime and popping it onto the exact same thing. It will be radically under-inclusive online, but it's something. It moves us a little step forward. We also could improve our disclosure regimes. Again, the, the disclosure being the, the reporting to the regulatory body um, that says uh, who paid for what when. Um, in the US, we could eliminate a lot of our exceptions. Um, most of our exceptions um, are not dictated by current US Supreme Court law. We could be requiring disclosure from a wider array of entities than we are right now. Um, and in the UK, you, you could expedite your reporting and you could require greater specificity in your reporting. So your reports can better facilitate that second piece of transparency, that second value of transparency, which is to actually help the voter understand and contextualize the communication um, more quickly and more efficiently. Um, and again, your electoral commission is, is advocating for that. Um, thirdly, we both have very messy foreign source exclusion rules. Um, and, and that's something that could get cleaned up. Um, and it, the value of cleaning it up, and this, is, this piece is probably more true at home than it is here, but our foreign source exclusion laws are going to get challenged um, um, in court. And it would be nice if we actually had a crisp, clear law so that challenge, that judicial review, could proceed as efficiently um, as possible. And then fourthly, and near and dear to my heart, um, we, we could really actually try to learn more from each other. I think um, people, again, who work in election law in our two countries, um, people who work in freedom of expression law generally, but also in particularly in the election law realm, we tend to dismiss each other's experiences too quickly because we think we don't really have common enough systems um, to, to um, uh, cross-pollinate ideas. I think that's wrong. I think when it comes to this new frontier that both nations are struggling with, which is trying to figure out how to, how to efficiently and appropriately regulate online electioneering, we actually can learn quite a bit from each other. Um, and I, I would hope um, that we could do so. Thank you. I would be happy to take questions if anyone has some. <laughs>